Lord Christ, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the honor and the privilege to uh, come before you. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for what it teaches us, Lord. We thank you that it continues to teach us and guide us into all truth. We thank you for your spirit that helps us to discern that word. We ask that you'd be present with us, that you would help us to take heart and to take hope in you, even as we observe uh, and, and deal with the consequences of a really difficult world. Lord Christ, we ask that you would make us instruments of your hope and grace. Draw us to you, we pray, in this time and in this place. Pray this in the Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants, and it becomes a tree so that the birds can come and perch in its branches. What an inviting image that is. All of us, I'm sure, have at one point or another been taken aback as we beheld a great tree. If you had a chance to join us on the, on the prayer walks in Mankey Park, you may have seen in the community garden this really incredible live oak. And maybe some of you have even had the privilege of driving uh, through Northern California to see the redwoods. But what I often forget when I read this parable or when I behold those trees is that it takes a really long time for that to happen. In some cases, hundreds of years, thousands of years for these trees to grow to their full size. As we read the New Testament, we observe something about Jesus' first disciples. They anticipate the coming of the kingdom of God in, in its fullness with a certain patient urgency. Right? They're patient because they're waiting on the Lord, they're trusting in the Lord. But they're urgent in the way they go about their business because they know at any point the master can return. And many of us, 2,000 years later, I think, from time to time, we scratch our heads and we wonder, will Jesus ever return? Will death and sorrow be extinguished once and for all? Will the powers of evil that are in our world ever succumb to the judgment and the reign of God? In the 1950s, a man named George Eldon Ladd, he put into words a phrase that's become pretty popular that describes this tension. He says, at the same time, God's kingdom is already and not yet fully a reality in our world. God's kingdom, in other words, is inaugurated, but not consummated. There's some examples of this uh, that I'd love to, to think about for a second. Death has already been defeated. When Jesus raised from the dead, we have all the proof we need. But yet, we still live in a world where we feel the sting of loss and death when those that are close to us pass away. Or, or take this. The church is already one body, a perfect, spotless bride of Christ not by its merit, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. 
and yet we're not rid of division and deep mistakes that the church seems to continue to make. It's already not yet. This morning in our passage from Philippians, Paul draws our attention to some already not yet realities in our personal transformation in Christ. He says, we're already justified by faith. We don't have to do it. But we're not yet living or experiencing the fullness of the new life that we have in Christ. The power of sin is already broken. We're free. And yet, we continue to struggle. We continue to, it continues to influence our lives and create consequences in our lives. I invite you to turn with me if, if you have, if you brought your Bible to Philippians 3, uh, verses 10 to 21. If you didn't, uh, there's some blue Bibles in the seats there. And it's on page 981 that we're going to be looking together. Um, as we go through it, I, I'm going to go through a couple of different versions. So if, if the words aren't exactly the same as the one in front of you, um, you know, just try to follow along as best you can. Um, let's jump in uh, in verse 10. It says this, I gave up all that inferior stuff so that I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. I'm not saying that I have all this together, that I have it made, but I am well on my way, reaching out for Christ who so wondrously reached for me. Last week, we took a look at this inferior stuff, right? It's all of those religious things that we can do, those practices that we take for the purpose of somehow gaining God's approval, affection, acceptance, right? He says all of that is inferior in comparison to what we already have through Christ, to what has already been given us. So Paul begins this passage, and he says, I'm clear that I'm good with God. And so I'm going to put all of my effort, all the things that I used to be doing, striving to be good or to make myself clean, I'm going to put all that effort instead of those things into knowing Christ, to really knowing Christ. Now, the challenge that we have as Western readers when we read this text is we think oftentimes that knowing is an intellectual exercise. Right? That the word is about something we do with our minds. But the, the, the beautiful thing is, it's much deeper than this. Uh, Nikki Gumbel, the, the creator of the Alpha Course, if you're familiar, he described this verse this way in a, in a commentary. He says, Paul's ambition is not to just know about Jesus, but to know him as a person. The word used here is the same as the Greek translation of the Hebrew word in Genesis when the writer says that Adam knew Eve. Paul wants to experience all, all that is involved in knowing and loving Christ. In fact, he's so crazy in love with Christ that he willingly accepts things that we often run from. Hey, he accepts suffering, and even in this text, he says he's ready to go all the way to death. <clears throat> and we know from his story that that's not, those aren't empty words. 
That's the reality of his story as it progresses. Where does this come from? The, the, the Holy Spirit working inside of him has given him an assurance that God is good and that he can know God and, and be known by God. Make no mistake, Paul is still working hard. But as Jesus said, he no longer works as a, a bond servant, as a slave, as a servant of Jesus, right? Because he knows the Father's heart. He knows the Father's will. He works as a friend, desiring to know him all the more. And the most beautiful thing that I've noticed in this passage is that it's not just that knowing Christ is within Paul's grasp, but in fact that Paul has been grasped by Jesus. It says, I press on to take hold of that which Jesus took hold of me. Jesus hasn't only saved Paul from some sort of bad future, he's taken hold of him. And being held by Jesus, Paul is forever changed and emboldened to live faithfully as he waits for the fullness of the kingdom to come. It's challenging, I think, for us to say we can totally relate, <laughs> that we can totally identify with all of that, but perhaps some of us can. Uh, let's continue in verse 13. It says this. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. If you're sitting here this morning and you think your past has some sort of decisive uh, role in determining your future and following Christ. I invite you to take the example of the Apostle Paul. Right? He spent his life, up until the moment that he met Christ, he spent his life persecuting the church. He was a murderer. And he did everything in his power to extinguish the thing that now, as he writes this passage, he's seeking to advance. Right? He says, I don't remember what's in the past. I strain towards what is the future. I keep my eye on the prize. Um, there's a, there's a, a really amazing passage uh, from a book uh, written by Leslie Newbegin where he describes Robert F. Scott's uh, journey to, the, uh, to Antarctica to explore the South Pole. Um, he says, on one occasion, the weather conditions were such that a white haze blended with the unbroken whiteness of the snow, and there was no horizon visible. There was no point on which they could direct their course as they moved their sledges forward. Before long, they were coming upon their own tracks. You see, they were going in circles. To solve this problem, they began throwing snowballs ahead of them, fixing their eyes on that position which was true south and using it to guide their path little by little. I don't know about you, but that is, to me, a horrifying image. I mean, can you imagine being in the middle of nowhere, a place where no one has charted the territory, and you cannot distinguish the ground from the sky? It's just one color, just nothingness. I, I can't imagine that experience, at least not literally, but I, I can relate to it experientially. And perhaps maybe you can too. The cynicism 
the pessimism and the relativism of our society from time to time have made it where I can't distinguish up from down. I've been so bogged down as I've seen really awful things in our world that, I, that even the things that once seemed good to me upon further inspection were a mixed bag at best. It's a disorienting feeling that I think many of us can relate to. I've even at times asked with Pilate, what is truth? But Paul understands something that we really have to pay attention to, something that our friends and our families need to know. We're never going to find our way forward by relying on our limited experiences of the world and calling it our truth. God's truth is unchanging. It's not bound by our circumstances. And, and this is the truth. This is the prize that, that we look forward to. You're welcome to join me in saying it. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ, Christ will, will come, come again. again. Paul made it his goal to orient his whole entire life on that reality. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, this truth transformed him. It transformed the way he did his work. It transformed the way he interacted with his family. It even transformed the way he approached his enemies. A man who once sought to kill his enemies is now forgiving and loving and holding on to truth in the middle of very difficult circumstances. Uh, Continue with me in verse 15. It says this, Let those of us who are mature think this way. If anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join me in imitating, in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Uh, this is a refreshing passage to me because in this section, Paul reminds us that we're not alone. Right? It's, it's not you and your Bible against the world. The reality is God has provided for us millions, literally millions of examples of people who have come before us and have demonstrated what does it look like to live faithfully, honestly, compassionately in the middle of a world that is faithless, dishonest, and oftentimes cruel. Now, this is why in the Anglican church we retell stories of Christians who have come before us because it inspires us and encourages us. But the good news is we don't have to settle just for stories of people in distant places, right? We, we also have mentors. We have spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers who have blazed a trail, who have gone before us, and who can teach us from their mistakes as well as from their successes. Uh, in my life, uh, it was a, a couple by the name of Mark and Yoli Brown. They taught Lauren and me what it looks like. We, we observed them in their home, what it looks like to submit mutually in love to one another. They demonstrated through their hospitality what it was like to care more for the needs of your guests than for your own when they're in your house. And to show them that they are at the same time fully known and fully loved as much as possible uh, within our human experience. And they taught us that from time to time, following Christ requires sacrifice. Uh, in, our, in our case, it involved twice moving across the country to unknown places 
to do the work that God has called us to. But we couldn't have done any of that without their encouragement, without them showing us the trail that they had already walked down. And I'm grateful today to be in a community where I can identify a a half a dozen spiritual mothers and fathers that the Lord has put in our lives for this season to help us through. And, And the good news is many of them, though they would shudder at the title of saintly, would be more than happy uh, to, to provide guidance and advice when you're in a tough spot. You won't get to the prize alone. God has given us community and he expects us to work together. I, I was reminded of this just a, a few weeks ago. Uh, I, I recently have joined a, a group, a fitness group in the morning. We meet at 5.30 in a parking lot. Uh, it's called F3. Um, it's, it stands for Fitness, Fellowship, and Faith. And um, I, I, was in, I, I was working, you know, with the, sorry, <clears throat> the first day of that workout was probably the hardest workout I've ever done. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've considered myself to be in, in relatively good shape. Uh, I, I went to the workout in good running shape, but I learned very quickly that there are a lot of muscles I don't use when I run. <laughs> and and to, yeah, to say it was, was difficult would be a great understatement. Thankfully, with time and with the encouragement of the group, I got stronger. Uh, and one day, I realized that I, I, I had forgotten too easily the first days at F3. Uh, we were doing a, a run, and I, of course, like running, and so I was towards the front of the group, and one of the, the, the people who had been more experienced with the group that under, really understood the ethos of the group, what they were trying to do, he said, okay, we need to go sweep. We need to run to the back and we need to help those who are lagging behind to come forward. Well, that day I gave him an excuse. I said, well, I actually ran here, and I'm running home, so I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm going to just go to the, to, the, to the end, and I'll wait for the group, and they'll, they'll get there. At the end of the workout, he, he corrected me, and he corrected the whole group. He said, look, at F3, we don't leave anyone behind. We get there together. And I realized at that point, I had forgotten my weakness just months before. I'd forgotten that I couldn't do even a third of the push-ups that they invited me to on that first day, and that for a week, when I sneezed, it hurt. (laughs) I I had forgotten that people had encouraged me, that they had pushed me along, that they kept me going when I didn't think I could do it. And that point I got to that point because of pride, because of my own ambition. But the Lord reminded me that just as that workout group works together, in the same way our our, our community, our church works together, we're not here to show off for each other. We're here to draw nearer in the Lord's grace and strength. And I think that's a bit of what Paul is getting at in this passage. We continue in verse 18. He says, there are many out there who are taking other paths choosing other goals and trying to get you to go along with them. I have warned you many times. Sadly, I'm having to do it again. All they want is easy street. They hate the cross of Christ. But easy street, it's a dead-end street. Those who live there make their bellies their gods. Belches are their praise. All they can think about is their appetites. 
but there's far more for us to live for. We are citizens of high heaven. Throughout this chapter, Paul has been warning us of two paths. Last week, we looked at the first, the path of those religious dogs, as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, those people who are all too eager to take on the old ways of trying to grow close to God, of, of trying to earn our status before him. Uh, Britt aptly responded, as Paul did, to their, uh, to their false teaching. But in this passage, this section, we see there's another path. And this path is marked by an apathy towards God's law and an indulgence in the things of this world. Uh, Gumbel describes it this way. Their appetites dictate their lifestyle. Paul tells us that their God is their stomach. Now, for some, this may actually literally be about their eating and drinking habits. But we need not interpret it quite so narrowly. Surely, Paul is referring to those whose God is personal satisfaction and whose lives revolve around sensuality. The, the dominant narrative of our culture is that the world and everything that's in it is there for our enjoyment. And, and so long as we don't hurt someone in the process, whatever we do is acceptable and right and within our rights. We can look at Hollywood, we can listen to music. It's not a hard uh, reality to observe. But as, uh, as is written in this passage, it's a dead-end street. Right? We can see this truth, uh, exa- for example, when we look at our own eating habits. Right? If we always ate whatever we wanted, as much as we wanted of it, and as often as we'd like, quickly our physical health would deteriorate. But the same is true with our desires as they relate uh, to a number of things, including the way we approach our money, uh, the way we approach uh, sexual intimacy, the way we approach substances, and even the way we approach our own personal and professional ambitions. It's all too easy for us to end up on this road. And in the reality that this road ends up hurting, on this road we end up hurting the people we love most in the world. And this road takes us away from the Father because there's only one road to the Father. And it's not through our appetites and desires that we'll get there. This is not to say that uh, we're not going to struggle with temptation. It's not to say that we won't make mistakes. Again, this is an already, not yet situation that we're in. But thanks to God, our life does not have to be consumed by self-indulgence. When we cry out for help and confess our shortcomings to God and to each other, we find that there is a middle road, a road of mercy and freedom not marked by religiosity, and not marked by self-love. Let's continue with the the last bit of the passage. It concludes with this saying, "We we are awaiting the arrival of the Savior, the Master, Jesus Christ, who will transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like his own. He'll make us beautiful and whole with the same powerful skill He is putting everything as it should be, under and around him. This is the hope 
that sustains Paul as he's beaten and imprisoned. This is the hope that has become a levy to hold back the floods of discouragement and despair as Paul observes churches that he's founded being led astray. And the fact that we're here together today reading this word, trying to walk that path is evidence that Paul's hope was not unfounded, that God's will and God's word persevere. So as we, uh, as we anticipate the future of God's kingdom, but live in a present difficult reality, I think there's a couple questions that I'd like to just throw out there. Perhaps these are things you can reflect on this week. What concrete steps am I taking to know Christ? What practices might God be inviting me to, into, in order to draw nearer to him? Not to earn, but to enjoy his favor. Have I lost sight of the goal? Am I disoriented, cynical, frustrated with myself, with the church, and with the world around me? What truth does God want to remind me of this week in his word in response to that frustration? And who am I imitating? Are there people in this community that I might invite to speak into my life as a mentor? With whom am I walking this Christian life? Does my fellowship extend beyond the hour of coffee on Sunday morning with other believers? And finally, which path am I on? Am I walking one of those paths of self-ambition or self-indulgence? Or by God's grace, am I walking as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? I'd like to close with this thought. Our journey is not all that different from that of the Israelites as they wandered in the desert. They were already free from slavery. They didn't have to go back to Pharaoh. They were out of Egypt. But yet they were not home. The Israelites often during this time became impatient with God. They complained, thinking that he had led them out in the middle of nowhere and was going to leave them there. Some of them uh, wished even that they could go back to Egypt, back to slavery, thinking that that was a more promising future. And others brought together resources in order to create a god of sorts, out out of gold that would be easier to understand, perhaps even easier to control. Jesus has led us out of captivity to sin and self. But we continue to struggle, don't we? God the Father has sent the Holy Spirit to make his presence in us and to guide us into all truth. Yet, from time to time, and in the face of serious difficulties, we find ourselves impatient, and we substitute God's love for those lesser things that the world has to offer. But there's hope. What makes our journey distinct from theirs is that we are not looking for a promised land, but a promised one. And each week we have a chance to remember that God sustains us on this journey. As we eat the bread and we drink the wine and celebrate communion together, 
God invites us to remember not just with our minds, but with our whole being that God is good, God is love, and God will make all things right. Let's pray. Lord Christ, we thank you uh, that you are with us. We thank you that the task before us is not to work really hard to make you accept us, but that you accept us and love us. And you're inviting us to come to know you and to be transformed by you in the process. Lord, the, the world is hurting and the world is in need of hope. The hope that Christ has died Christ has risen, defeating death, and that Christ will come again to make all things right. But that's a hope that people need to hear. And I pray that you would give us sensitivity, that you would give us discernment of your spirit, and help us to communicate that truth to those around us who are in need of it in a loving and compassionate rather than a preachy way. Lord, draw us closer to you. Help us on this journey to remember that you are sustaining us, that you do love us, and that you are coming back. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.